from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. Hello Earthlings, welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical, literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started! A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz, with knowledge I persevere, but for I'm gonna. Hey, people! I'm on winter break right now. So what? It's crazy snowed in here in Madison, Wisconsin. We had like a hundred feet of snow. Not literally, but it's close. There's crazy snow everywhere. I had to dig my car out the other day, and I had to help my neighbor dig her car out. And it was just insane. There's just white everywhere. Everywhere you look. Someone wrote about, it's like uh, Tony Montana's desk in here. Anyway, uh, I have, I got two extra days off for winter break. Woo! So that was pretty cool. And uh, I needed those extra days, too, because let me tell you something. At the end of the calendar year, life gets hectic at the classroom level. So anyway, that's nice. And because I have some extra time. I got all this time. See, I don't care about money so much. I'm interested in time. I mean, cash rules everything around me, almost everything, but time is what really rules everything around me. And Wu-Tang Clan, should, now they're a little older, a little more mature, they should come back and do a Treem track about time rules everything around me, because it does. Let me tell you what. I suppose Treem doesn't sound so good. So what else could you use? What acronym could you come up with? Trout, time rules uh, outstanding understanding time. That would be awesome. Get on that, RZA and the Jizza and Bill Murray. Anyway, uh, because I have a little extra time, I'm going to do an East Timor show. Someone got in touch and said, hey, you mentioned an East Timor show. You should do an East Timor show. So I'm going to do an East Timor show because I got a little time. And uh, I'm going to be playing a lot of video games. Oblivion, holla, Bethesda, uh, what? But, uh, I'm also going to be using that time to educate peoples. And I realized something recently. So every episode tends to have about 200 downloads, which is very awesome. I think that's amazing. One episode had like 800, which I don't know what that's about. But anyway, uh, it must have been a fluke. Someone accidentally leaked the link to something. Anyway, so (laughs) it's very enlightening, Eric. Thanks. Yeah, someone did the thing with the stuff. So here's the thing. 200 people listening every week. That's awesome. Or every as often as I can get this thing out there. Um, So that's very rewarding. I feel like I'm very blessed to have people listening to what I have to say. Can eat more. And um, I realize that that's more students than I have in a semester. So that's people listening every week. And that's more people than I have in the classroom. I think of the classroom as my bully pulpit. And I'm always bullying the pulpit. But... uh, This is also a bully pulpit. So listen to what I have to say, people. As I mentioned last week, or last time, uh, we have an action of the week. And this week, it's about fighting media consolidation. And as you may know, there's all sorts of crazy uh, efforts in the U.S. to try to get uh, more and more of the media into the fewer and fewer hands. And it's been a process that's been going on for like 20 years. And it's totally messed up because it means that we have fewer and fewer points of view available to us. And paradoxically, we have more and more channels. So we have this vision that we think that we're getting a lot more perspectives, but we're actually getting fewer and fewer. Because if you have 20 TV channels in, in 10 hands, 
that's 10 different perspectives that you're getting in 20 different outlets, right? But if you have eight people giving you 30 channels, that's actually, it seems like you have more choice, but in fact, you have fewer perspectives and that's messed up. And it's, it's continuing, continuing. And the FCC was trying to do this during the Bush administration. And, uh, we all stood up and said, no, no, no. And uh, but now that the Obama administration is trying to do it, or I, I don't know if it's fair to say the Obama administration is trying to do it, but the FCC is trying to allow Rupert Murdoch and other people to get more and more concentrated power in the media, and that's messed up. Fortunately, Free Press has a little easy website you can send a message to the FCC saying absolutely not, and you could also call the FCC or write them a letter, which is also good, and uh, let them know that you do not uh, approve of relaxing media ownership rules. So there's a link on my website fbesp.org. You go to freepress.org. Uh, for, excuse me, freepress.net and uh, sign a, a little letter to the FCC and let them know you are opposed to that sort of mess. And uh, yeah, so there's that. Let's get to the current event. There was another school shooting, this time in Connecticut, and um, it, there's a lot to be said about it. I, I don't have a whole lot to say. This, that's actually a lie. There's like 100 things I want to say about it. Uh, but first of all, I want to honor uh, the the the. Of course, you know, thoughts and, and best wishes go out to the families, um, comforting, you know, e-hugs, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's a horrible tragedy, very sick, very sad, and I want to especially highlight a woman named Victoria Soto. Uh, she was a teacher at the elementary school where it took place, and the Washington Post had a quote from a police officer where she said, the police officer said, uh, she put herself between the gunman and the children. Her instincts as a teacher kicked in. And I think that's really beautiful. I've mentioned Livio Labrescu here on this show, um, the hero of the one of the heroes of the uh, Virginia Tech massacre, and I think this woman is also a beautiful um Example of the best that teachers can do uh, in times of crisis, and and also let's remember that lots of teachers um, sort of put ourselves metaphorically between the demons of ignorance and self-destruction and, and hatred and, and all that stuff uh, and students every day. So, um, yeah, rest in peace, Victoria Soto. You're a beautiful person, and I love you. Um, I also want to highlight, and I mentioned this to students on the day of the massacre because I had some in the afternoon who came in asking about it, and every time, uh, you know, especially when a school shooting these days happens, I think of the response, anytime a shooting of any kind happens, there was a, a school shooting in an Amish community in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania in 2006, and it was a horrible incident, very sad, again, mental illness played a big role, and we'll talk about mental illness in just a minute. Um, but the, the Wikipedia article about the shooting in the Amish community is very thoroughly cited. And this is what that article says. The, 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 the important thing to remember about the Amish response is that it was the response to the shooting was one of mercy and love and, and kindness and compassion. And, and it's especially amazing that they reached out to the family of the guy who did the shooting, which I think is just painfully beautiful in its element of mercy and compassion. So here's what the Wikipedia article says. On the day of the shooting, a grandfather of one of the murdered Amish girls was heard warning some young relatives not to hate the killer, saying, quote, we must not think evil of this man. Another Amish father noted, quote, he had a mother and a wife and a soul, and now he's standing before a just God, end quote. 
Jack Meyer, a member of the Brethren community living near the Amish in Lancaster County, explained, quote, I don't think there's anybody here that wants to do anything but forgive and not only reach out to those who have suffered a loss in that way, but to reach out to the family of the man who committed these acts, end quote. Uh, so the, the guy who did the shooting was named Roberts. A Roberts family spokesman said an Amish neighbor comforted the Roberts family hours after the shooting and extended forgiveness to them. Amish community members visited and comforted Roberts's widow, parents, and parents-in-law. One Amish man held Roberts's sobbing father in his arms reportedly for as long as an hour to comfort him. The Amish have also set up a charitable fund for the family of the shooter. About 30 members of the Amish community attended Roberts's funeral, and Marie Roberts, the widow of the killer, was one of the few outsiders invited to the funeral of one of the victims. And I think that's a beautiful thing for us to remember because it's so important for us to, to check our tendency to hate and demonize and, 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 and spew invective at not only the person who did the thing, but also the family and the people near him. Because we want to blame people, and it's understandable that we want to blame people when such a, something so horrible as this comes along. And there's no shortage of people that will offer themselves as targets for our blame. The NRA comes to mind, but... I think, you know, I've always said over and over again that there's this 16th century Zen master uh, named Banke who said, the true human ideal is to love those who are, to help those, who, the true human ideal is to forgive those who are foolish and help those who are evil. And I think that we have a tendency, especially in the U.S., to think of people as pure evil or pure good. And the truth is that all human beings are somewhere in the middle. And... Um, you know, when we look on Facebook and we see people, you know, who, who are sending messages of hatred and anger toward people who have the same name as the guy or the brother of the person who did it, that's, that's a sad commentary on all of us. And uh, it's understandable that we'll be angry, but, but, but what we do with that anger is so very important. And we don't want to let our anger and our hatred turn us into angry, hateful people. Because that's exactly the type of person who can do horrible things. And, and not even necessarily horrible things, but, but just cruel things. And, and, and lose opportunities to be kind to other people. And, and that's what's best about human beings, is that we can take our anger sometimes, and we can turn it into love and compassion. And these Amish people, I think, showed us the way. Business Week had an interesting perspective. The headline was, To prevent massacres like new towns, expand Medicaid. This is from the article in Business Week. Limiting the availability of assault weapons is an obvious and necessary step to reducing the future likelihood of mass shootings like the one in Connecticut, but, it is, but so is maintaining and improving health care, mental health care services, which have been severely strained in recent years and in some areas reduced and are further threatened by the fallout from a recent Supreme Court decision and the incipient deal to avert the fiscal cliff. The linchpin is Medicaid. Although mainly thought of as a safety net program for the poor, Medicaid provides about half of state mental health budgets. Quote, Medicaid is hands down the most important source of funding for public mental health services, says Ron Honberg, the director for policy and legal affairs at the National Alliance on Mental Illness. But the recession and the Republican-led effort to slash social spending have put enormous pressure on those budgets. 
So mental health is very important for us to think about here. Um, there was a, uh, a very powerful piece uh, that circulated on the internet. You've probably seen it by now. If not, I encourage you to check it out. Uh, the title is uh, I Am Adam Lanza's Mother. And it's by a woman who's not actually related to the Lanza family, but she has a son who has special needs and has violent tendencies sometimes. And most of the time, he's very sweet and loving and, and, and reasonable, but every once in a while, he gets into these situations where he's threatening violence and threatening to kill people and it's horrifying for the mother and she doesn't know what where to turn or what to do now her family is relatively comfortable from what i could tell but and the 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 family of the newtown killer was also relatively comfortable financially so this isn't necessarily a class issue but we have to take a look at what services are available for families and especially families that have um kids who, who are in these desperate states and there is some discussion on reddit about you know some people taking this sort of hardline stance about oh, we lock these people away forever and that's easy to say when it's not your son but the truth is that at the very least we need to wrestle with what families can do and try to offer them as many options as possible because right now it seems like our society is just saying whatever families deal with it on your own and we say that in so many ways about so many things and and it's sad that it takes a tragedy like this to, to, to shock us into recognizing that we're not really doing our job as a community of people in lots of different ways. And uh, I just I just think we should do more of that. That said, some people have said that the problem is ha we don't have enough guns in the schools. And the NRA has said that they want an armed guard in every school in America. And one of the listeners, Jason G, wrote in to say that he supports having well-trained teachers carry firearms. And uh, he suggested that I invite someone who advocates such a view to appear on the show. I welcome varying points of view. I'm, I'm not actually looking for guests on the show right now, maybe at some point in the future. Um, it's worth noting that the NRA, as I said, agrees with Jason's view, but it's also worth noting that there was an armed police officer on the campus of Columbine High School that day. And the Fort Hood shooting that took place, Fort Hood was an army base. It was a military base. And... Um, that, that didn't seem to stop or prevent or, you know, who knows if it limited the shooting that happened there. But uh, I, I don't think, personally, I don't think more guns are the answer. And uh, Tim Wise wrote about that. He had a piece recently called Of Heroes and Hype, Mass Murder and the Absurdity of the More Guns Crowd. This is what he wrote. For gun enthusiasts to claim that they could have taken down these killers if they had been there or that others like them could have is to play the role of Monday morning quarterback, operating with the benefit of hindsight, aware of what the shooter did and where they did it, such that they can somehow envision themselves Rambo-like, crouching behind a door or under a stairwell or behind a chair and easily squeezing off enough rounds to spare lives and emerge the day's savior. How easy it must be and convenient to retroactively ascribe to oneself the status of would-be hero. End quote. Now, Tim Wise also points out that the presence of armed educators would not be a likely deterrent since people who are willing to do such things are not thinking logically in the first place. And this is something that Sister Helen Prejean talks about in one of her books where she says the, the people doing the killing and the people doing the thinking are not the same people. So as as logical as it might be in theory to say that, oh, we need more guns in the schools because that will deter people or it will it will help limit these things. Um, you know, we can argue about how much it would limit it, but but the point is that I don't think that that's going to make a big difference because the the people who are sick enough to do this sort of thing have crossed lines and 
the truth is that often it's it's a, these days, especially it's sort of a murder suicide thing where they're planning to die anyway, and they just want to take as many people as possible with them. And it's very sick and twisted, and it makes me very sad. And I wish there were an easy answer. And I think the attempt to look at guns as being an easy answer is sort of an easy answer type thing. But there's no easy answer, of course. Meanwhile, Jeffrey Sachs wrote in Economy Watch a piece called America's Real Freedoms, and this is another refutation of the, the concept of more guns. This is what he writes. Between the mid-1970s and mid-1990s, Australia had several mass shootings. After a particularly horrible massacre in 1996, a new prime minister, John Howard, declared that enough was enough. He instituted a severe crackdown on gun ownership and forced would-be gun owners to submit to a rigorous application process and to document why they would need a gun. The policy worked. While violent crime has not ended in Australia, murders are down, and even more dramatically, there has not been a single mass shooting since 1996 in which three or more people died, the definition used in many studies of mass shootings. Before the crackdown, there had been 13 such massacres in 18 years. Simply put, freedom in the 21st century does not depend on unregulated gun ownership. Indeed, America's gun culture is a threat to freedom. After the murder of a president, senator, and other public leaders, and countless assassination attempts after against public officials over recent decades. End quote. Now, I don't believe that what what worked in Australia will necessarily work here. There are probably lots of reasons why there hasn't been a mass murder in Australia since 1996. Um, but the point is that we we can't, we have to stop looking at more gun regulation as this lunatic idea that will not never bring any help as bill hicks said there's no connection between gun ownership and 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 gun killings you know there there's no connection between having a gun and shooting someone with it and not having a gun and not shooting someone there have been studies done and there's no connection whatsoever Moving along, there was a piece in, uh, where was this? Rollreboot.org. I don't even know what this is, some website. Um, but it had a very interesting point that they were making. And uh, it said, making sense of men and women, uh, culture and politics. Uh, it's some website. Um, and the article is titled, Why Most Mass Murderers Are Privileged White Men. Uh, here's what they write. After Soing Huey Cho killed 32 people in Blacksburg, the Virginia Tech massacre, media attention focused on the likelihood that a Korean culture unwilling to acknowledge mental illness helped drive the young man to commit the worst mass murder in U.S. history. After Major Nadal Hassan carried out the Fort Hood shootings, his Muslim faith became all the public needed to know about his motive. It seems likely that Islamic extremism did lead Hansan, Hassan to kill. It's possible that Cho's cultural background did mean that his psychological problems were particularly likely to be ignored. Ethnicity, faith, and social class are key parts of the modern human identity. They are always part of the explanation for why we think the way we think and act the way we act. The difference, as Chauncey DeVega made clear on Saturday, is that when white men commit mass murder, we don't hear about how their skin color, their maleness, or their social class were contributing factors to their act. As Peggy McIntosh famously wrote in her white privilege checklist, quote, we see whites as individuals whose moral state reflects their individual will. In other words, white men kill simply because they are sick or evil. When men of color murder, it's because both of those things and because of factors uniquely attributable to their race, end quote. And Davey D, the hip-hop journalist, also wrote about race and the shooting. And he, this is what he wrote in a piece called An Open Letter to the Media About the Sandy Hook Shooting. Thanks for letting us know that Nancy Lanza wasn't an evil woman, but a nice mom who didn't want to leave her son alone and that she was trying her best to love her kids with little help. 
Later on in the piece, he says, Corporate media folks, thank you in advance for putting your investigative analytical reporting skills to full use and letting us know the troubles and mental challenges that Ray Ray Darnell and anyone else from the inner city who commits a crime is going through next time one occurs. Thank you for letting us know that Ray Ray from the inner city who commits a crime was having difficulties coping with divorce, their parents being separated, etc., just like Adam Lanza. End quote. Um, so, you know, I don't want to make it sound like I have easy answers either. I don't think that gun control is an easy answer here. I don't think expanding mental health services is an easy answer. But I support both of those uh, modes of action, and I believe that most Americans probably support more gun control. The Brady campaign has a lot of good resources and information and, and suggestions about how we can do things better in terms of limiting access to deadly weapons and extended clip magazines and, and so forth. The AR... Uh, 50, I don't even know which weapon it is, the one that Adam Lanza used, uh, and I believe is the same one used by the guy in the um, the movie theater massacre. Uh, that weapon is seems like a particularly hideous piece of machinery, and yet NPR had a guy on recently who was talking about how cool it is and how rewarding it is when you pull the trigger and all this. And I'm sorry, but that, that shouldn't be available to citizens. In the same way that ordinary civilians should not be allowed to own nuclear weapons, it seems to me like the AR-15 or whatever it is uh, shouldn't be in the hands of ordinary civilians either. I'm sorry, that makes me crazy. Uh, whatever. Oh. So, uh, moving on to other issues that have been going on in the world. NPR had an important piece about how Greek hospitals have been suffering in an ailing economy. Uh, a quote: They quote a, a person named Vangelis Papamichalis, uh, a neurologist at the regional hospital of Ceres in northern Greece and a member of the doctor's union there. Quote, on top of that, we have basic supplies. We lack basic supplies to do our jobs. We run out of surgical gloves, syringes, vials for blood samples, and needles to sew stitches, among other things. End quote. Last week, the European Center for Disease the European Center for Disease Prevention and Control said these shortages will contribute to hospital-acquired infection rates in Greece, which are already among the worst in Europe. So this is this is what austerity looks like, people. When we say that countries need to ba- balance their budgets and stop all the spending, again, Medicaid, uh, hospital spending, it ends up hurting poor people the most. And, and rich people never seem to have to sacrifice much when we're in these moments of austerity. Because let's not forget, freaking Goldman Sachs isn't hurting right now, okay? I'll bet if you look, and I don't know for sure, but I'll bet if you look at the profit reports for the last two quarters on Wall Street, they're doing just fine. The rest of us are being told to tighten our belts, as Bill Hicks said. You know what would help me if I could tighten my belt around Jesse Helms' scrawny little chicken neck? I'd eat bologna for a week. Moving on, uh, let's talk about fracking. Uh, dude, there's so much cool fracking news. Not cool, but <laughs> it's cool. Check out this cool news about fracking. You can light your water on fire. Woo! Uh, no, but the <laughs> Colo- the Denver Post had an article about Colorado drilling rigs closing in on 60s nuke site. And I shouldn't say that they had an article recently because this is an article from a while ago. Uh, this is from 2009, but I just found it out recently. So I just found it fascinating. There's the dumped a bunch of nukes or they dropped a bunch of nuclear bombs uh anyway here's what it's here's the article after decades of controversy natural gas drilling rigs are popping up around the 1969 rulison atomic blast site south of rifle there's a city in colorado named rifle a failed experiment in using a nuclear bomb to boost natural gas production sweet 
there was a turtle by the name of Bert, and Bert was always looking for natural gas. When danger threatened him, he never got mad. He blew up nuclear bombs. Uh, under a proposal released last week by the U.S. Department of Energy, drilling with radiation monitoring would be permitted to push closer to the town about 180 miles west of Denver. The Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission, <laughs> what a cute name, has already issued 84 drilling permits within three miles of the site, including 11 within a mile. In 1969, as part of the Plowshares program, in that cute a government program called Plowshares. Ha, <laughs> that's adorable. For those who don't know, plowshares is a reference to the Bible where it says you should beat your swords into plowshares. Use your weapons, reuse, change the weapons into something that will help you to grow food and help people. So that's what the U.S. government did is drop nuclear bombs to try to help free up natural gas. Winning! Uh, so Plowshares program saw its peaceful uses for nuclear power. An atomic device was detonated 8,426 feet below Rulison to fracture the rock and boost recovery of natural gas. The 43 kiloton device, three times as powerful as the bomb exploded at Hiroshima, did produce 455 million cubic feet of natural gas, but it was all radioactive and unmarketable. Now, I think they just didn't know what they were doing back then. Modern fracking techniques... They're much more sophisticated than we had in 1969. Pfft, come on, 69. Ooh, Grandpa, I don't know how to use nuclear weapons. We don't know how to do it. We know how to do it right now. We need to start unregulating nuclear bombs for fracking. That's the best of both worlds. Then you could light your water on fire and kill super mutants at the same time. I'm hungry! Here, let me heat you up some rad roach meat on top of some natural gas. Yeah! Mmm, delicious! Thank God for nuclear fracking! Yeah, nuclear fracking now! We demand nuclear fracking. Meanwhile, uh, there's a new movie coming out. I'm totally psyched. It comes out on the 28th, so it's six days away. Matt Damon... Matt Damon! ...and John Krasinski, who plays Jim on the U.S. TV show The Office, uh, they've written a movie about fracking. It's called Promised Land. It looks awesome! Here, I'm going to play you a little sample from the trailer. I grew up in a large farming community. Tractor pulls, cow tipping. We had a caterpillar plant. My junior year, they closed it down. And that whole farming town fantasy was just shattered. I'm selling them the only way they have to get back. I am happy to announce we will be bringing natural gas to McKinley. Can't believe this is right outside the city. It looks like Kentucky. Two hours outside any city looks like Kentucky. Are you the owner of this place? No. Well, how come you're doing all the work? You sign this lease, it gives us the right to drill on your land. A whole lot of money down there. That is true. How much you think? There's no reason your town shouldn't have a state-of-the-art high school. What kind of money are you talking about? You could be a millionaire. I thought it would be harder. It's too easy. Research say anything about an environmental presence here? No. Let me guess. 40, married, marketing, two kids. 38, stripper slash waitress, but born to be a singer. Well, I'm a teacher. No, no, I was talking about me. Hi, everybody. I'm here because my farm is gone. The land just turned brown and it died. It's happened to one of us. It can happen to all of us. All right, so, I mean, the thing I like about this movie is that, from what I can tell, it's avoiding simplistic explanations because Matt Damon was on uh Matt Damon he was on uh the thing with the stuff and uh no Tavis Smiley he was on the Tavis Smiley show and um 
he had a lot of interesting things to say about how, you know, for a lot, the, the point that he makes at the beginning of the trailer is exactly right. A lot of these farming communities are, are dying and natural gas production might be the only way that these, some of these families can make any kind of profit on their land. And I, I think that's very important to keep in mind. And a lot of, some families are doing quite well as a result of that. However, there are also a lot of questions about the environmental impact of this fracking process. And it's a Faustian bargain sometimes to um, make a decision that says, yes, we will give you up the rights to our land to, to drill for natural gas. And, and of course, there's all these promises about you'll never notice it and there's going to be no environmental impact. But the contract that you sign means that if there is, you can't sue the companies for whatever happens. And that's something that's really not being addressed. And I also think it's a disgrace that these natural gas companies are able to say, like, we're the saviors of these small towns. And, and, and the, the point is, of course, that they only care about these small towns when there's some profit to be made. And it feels to me a lot like there will be blood, where it's all about, I drink your milkshake. And never mind what I promised you, never mind about your church, I drink your milkshake. Meanwhile, uh, there's an interesting article at The Guardian uh, about fracking lobbyists are preparing their case against Matt Damon's movie The Promised Land. Um, Hollywood's discovery of fracking has caused some unease in the oil and gas industry, even in the midst of America's energy boom. A leading lobby group, Energy In Depth, has put out a cheat sheet of pro-fracking talking points to counter any bad publicity that may arise following the release of the new Matt Damon film, blah, blah, blah. Um, the film, which also stars uh, John Krasinski, oh yeah, and Frances McDormand, how awesome is that that she's in it, is the first Hollywood treatment of one of the most contentious issues in rural America, the boom in natural gas production that has been unlocked by hydraulic fracturing and horizontal drilling. In the film, any reservations Matt Damon's character might have had about his job catch up with him in Pennsylvania, etc., etc. Energy and depth weighed in after Kaczynski appeared on Letterman this month, accusing the actor in a blog post of freestyling. It described an exchange regarding fracking as a two-minute fact-free explanation of a process about which neither participant proved to have any real, actual, discernible knowledge. But energy and depth has a lobbying front group. They can give you the real information. Other industry groups have considered emailing pro-fracking studies to critics, handing out leaflets to moviegoers, or setting up, quote, truth squads on Twitter, according to news reports. Some have even argued that the film is a fiendishly clever attempt by Middle Eastern oil-producing countries to destroy America's homegrown natural gas industry. One of the production companies behind the film is funded in small part by Image Nation Abu Dhabi, an investment company based in the United Arab Emirates. So... Uh, Look, this is a dramatization of a situation. You should never trust a movie to give you complete information or even accurate information. You should go looking for information on your own. Fortunately, the guy who made Gasland, Josh Fox, has done some amazing work assembling what he has found about the truth of hydraulic fracturing. And I'll be honest, I, I, you know, does this guy have an agenda? Is he getting funding from, you know, environmental groups? maybe. But you know what? I trust him, a banjo-playing independent filmmaker, a lot more than I trust industry front groups, okay? So he has an interesting PDF uh, called Affirming Gasland uh, where there's this rebuttal, and it's it's dozens, maybe hundreds of pages. I started looking at it, I got about a third of the way through, and I was like, man, this is kind of over my head, but it's full of a lot of really interesting information. Uh, so here's a sh brief excerpt from it. The new hydraulic fracturing that has brought about so much attention in the last few years is different in many ways from the historic fracturing, which is an important point because people who refute the, the claims made in Gasland, and if you haven't seen Gasland, you definitely need to. That's the, you know you should see that 
first before you see promised land uh or at least soon afterwards you should definitely see gas land because uh, it's a very important series of points and and the tour he takes all over the country looking at natural gas and fracking is is he does such a good job and again i think like any documentary filmmaker he's sort of trying to get at the truth and he's not necessarily trying to say like here's the point i'm here's the point you need to agree with or here's what you need to agree with or, here's how you should think about fracking instead he says look here's where i'm coming from situated knowledge there you go, which is something that the front groups won't tell you. You'll never have a lobbyist say, well, I'm just talking as a representative of the oil and gas industry. No, they never say that. I'm just a hometown mom. Anyway, uh, I don't know why an industry front lobbyist would say I'm a hometown mom. But anyway, uh, concerned Americans. But here's the thing. Josh Fox does a really good job of just saying, here's what I found when I was traveling around. Here's what these people said, and here's what the other side said. And you make up your own mind. And he does a very good job of sort of putting all the information out on the table. This PDF is another great collection of the same thing. Uh, so here we go. The common industry line, there has never been a proven case of water contamination caused by hydraulic fracturing. So the industry often says. Industry representatives and lobbyists said this over and over again in the film. It's a carefully worded sentence that contains a major deception. The word proven... How can you prove something that has never been investigated? Hydraulic fracturing has never been investigated fully by the EPA. The fact that non-naturally occurring chemicals specifically associated with fracking fluids and drilling muds are showing up in people's water supplies is the first level of proof. EID, Energy and Demand, denies the testimony of the citizens. Very tricky wording which belies the real truth quite deliberately. Um, and Josh Fox was also on PBS Now recently, and it was a very interesting interview. Uh, they have some excerpts from Gasland, so you should definitely check that out. Um, yeah, I've actually uh, sent an email to somebody, uh, to the public relations people at Gasland, to see if maybe somebody would come on the Syncast, uh, even though I'm not interested in having guests on. You know what, maybe at some point in the future, I'm just sort of putting feelers out there. I asked Jun Chang at one point if he might want to come on the show. I just think that would be really cool. Hey, I got Robin Miller to be on the Veteran Gamers, man. I got Tom Bissell. Who knows what I could do if I really put my mind to it. Speaking of cash money, there was a very interesting piece in Al Jazeera called Dirty White Gold, Monsanto in India. Here's what it says. The website of U.S.-based biotech giant Monsanto boasts that the corporation qualifies as, quote, a sustainable agriculture company. It's like the the company in Michael Clayton. You ever saw that movie? Oh, man, Tilda Swinton, dude. Let me tell you what. That's exactly what Monsanto is. Given Monsanto's legacy as a producer of the lethal defoliant Agent Orange during the Vietnam War, Southeast Asian agriculture would presumably beg to differ with this characterization. Sustainability is also not the first word that comes to mind when contemplating Monsanto's policy of sowing the earth with genetically modified seeds that destroy soil and are designed with non-renewable traits so as to require constant repurchase, as well as acquisition of a variety of other company products like fertilizers and pesticides. Nor would the term appear to define a situation in which nearly 300,000 Indian farmers have committed suicide since 1995 after being driven into insurmountable debt by neoliberal economics and the conquest of Indian farmland by Monsanto's bacillus good god what is that word thuringiensis cotton BT cotton whatever that's like that electronic music uh Ah, wake me up I don't remember how it goes uh, love peace and grease there's BT in tragic irony, many kill themselves by imbibing pesticides intended for their crops. 
you know, and I realize that the most entertaining sort of, you know, opinion shows are always laced with humor, and I'm trying to be funny sometimes, but man, it's hard to be funny when you're reading about Indian farmers killing themselves. Maybe I could I could go really offensive and really be rude and disheartening. Like, oh, yes, thank you. Come again. I'm going to drink this insecticide now. <laughs> That's not funny, man. It's it's kind of funny, but it's also horribly offensive and rude. Maybe I should cut that out. Nope, too late. I'm moving on. HSBC. Oh, my God. Talk about depressing stuff. This And this goes to show the the lack. You know, people talk about law and order and justice and, and the need for us to uh, tough on crime. Yeah, you know what? Shut up about your tough on crime. HSBC, this is insane. The U.S. government recently said they're going to fine HSBC rather than seek jail time for executives because they're too big to jail. There's no way we could do it. They're the new poster child for the U.S. two-tiered system of justice. This is absolutely unbelievable. And this article comes from The Guardian. Over the last year, federal investigators found that one of the world's largest banks, HSBC, spent years committing serious crimes involving money laundering for terrorists, facilitating money laundering by Mexican drug cartels, and moving tainted money for Saudi banks tied to terrorist groups. Those investigations uncovered substantial evidence, quote, that senior bank officials were complicit in the illegal activity. As but one example, quote, an HSBC executive at one point argued that the bank should continue working with the Saudi Al-Raji Bank, which has supported Al-Qaeda, end quote. However, we can't actually take executives to court. U.S. authorities defended their decision not to prosecute HSBC for accepting the tainted money of rogue states and drug lords on Tuesday, insisting that a $1.9 billion fine for a litany of offenses was preferable to the, quote, collateral consequences of taking the bank to court. Announcing the record fine at a press conference in New York, Assistant Attorney General Lanny Brewer said that despite HSBC's, quote, blatant failure, end quote, to implement anti-money laundering controls and its willful flouting of U.S. sanctions, the consequences of a criminal prosecution would have been dire. Had the U.S. authorities decided to press criminal charges, HSBC would almost certainly have lost its banking license in the U.S., the future of the institution would have been under threat, and the entire banking system would have been destabilized. Out of the article, so therefore we can't prosecute these banks. There's nothing you can do about it. Basically, you give them a fine, and let's be honest. No, wait, Matt Taibbi is going to tell us what that means later on. Uh, so back to the article. Had the uh, yeah, HSBC, Britain's biggest bank, said it was profoundly sorry for what it called past mistakes. It's the it's the Fight Club equation: A times B times C equals X. If X is larger than the cost of a recall, we don't do one. Uh, H A plus B plus C. Uh, anyway. Um, past mistakes that allowed terrorists and narcotics traffickers to move billions around the financial system and circumvent U.S. banking laws. Yeah, past mistakes. Whoopsie, we accidentally let these Mexican drug cartels launder their money. Oh, gee willikers, we're sorry. Suckers. Bob the businessman, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing good. How you doing? Yeah, what do you think about this HSBC verdict? I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. I think these stupid Americans are so stupid when they think that they're doing something about this drug war and this terrorism war. Ha <laughs> ha, you're so stupid. And meanwhile, us business people, we're getting crazy paid off of the whole thing. Keep it up, suckers. Keep bailing out the banks and keep uh, resisting legislation that regulates them. Because I tell you what, you stupid Americans, you think you're getting off good, you're going to make it big if you don't have a lot of government restrictions and regulations keeping you down. Ha <laughs> yeah, right. What it's really doing is helping this, the, us fat cats on Wall Street. So drink it in, suckers. 
suck on that smoke I'm spitting out and keep sucking down this crime and how we're supporting the Mexican drug cartels and the terrorists. Yeah, to see you later. Thanks for coming by, Bob. Matt Taibbi appeared on Democracy Now! And he had a, a lot of really good things to say. You should totally watch it. I should play audio clips. But you know what? I'm at 40 minutes already. We're never getting through this thing if I keep pausing to play audio. You only played one thing. Shut up. Uh, <laughs> what was that guy's name? The annoying dude? That, whatever. Uh, so here's what Matt Taibbi said. Uh, $1. billion sounds like a lot of money. And it definitely is. It's a record settlement. No bank has ever paid this much money before. But it's about two months worth of profits for HSBC. Two months. They can sneeze that money away. Chap wouldn't wipes his ass with $1.9 billion. Uh, and then I went looking at the Demo Democracy Now! archives, and I was just blown away. Because they had an interview with these two guys, Barlett and Steele. They have a new book out called The Betrayal of the American Dream. They were awesome. They put, they put out a whole bunch of books. Uh, one was called America, Who Pays the Taxes? And America, What Went Wrong? was their first really big breaking um, uh, story on... Um, Basically, the way the economy's been shifting over the last... It, they wrote it in, like, 1986 or something, and it was all about how the economy had been shifting for the last 20 years at that time. And then, so this new book is all about everything that's happened since then and how it's all just gotten worse. And they had a really interesting um, piece uh, in, in, the, in the interview. They sort of... Uh, so you should watch the interview with Barlett and Steele. It's really interesting. And uh, there's an interview uh, part that Amy Goodman talks to this New York Times reporter, Charles Duhigg, uh, and I'm going to play a sample of that one actually, because he has a really interesting point. Back on Apple earlier this year, Democracy Now! spoke to Charles Duhigg, a staff reporter for the New York Times. I asked him about President Obama's meeting with the late Steve Jobs of Apple in February of 2011 to see what it would take to make iPhones in the United States. This is what Charles Duhigg said. One of the things that, that President Obama asked was, is it ever possible to bring back those jobs to the United States, to make iPhones in the U.S.? And what Steve Jobs said was, I think accurately, those jobs are never coming back. And the reason why isn't just because workers are cheaper in China, although that they are cheaper in China. It's because China has established a huge competitive advantage over the U.S. There's supply chains that exist in China and Asia now, which the U.S. simply can't replicate. So there's an important point being made there, not just about the cheap labor, but because of the infrastructure. And again, this is something that a lot of American companies won't even acknowledge because it would require some sort of public spending. Unless you're going to create a private infrastructure for companies, that's not going to happen because they always want to add... Uh, uh, externalize the costs and infrastructure repair and working on our train system and improving our highways and bridges that's something that that requires public spending because uh, those are costs that you want to make the public uh, uh, pay but as soon as you start talking about the public doing it then the Grover Norquist comes along and goes no you can't tax trading so the whole thing is just a big mess and uh, I don't even know why I started talking about that moving on Paul Krugman had a piece about robots and economics, and I, I'm stoked because he said uh, what I said not long ago. Using more robots means that the owners retain more of the wealth. And uh, I don't want to say this just for ego. I want to make it clear here. When I'm excited because I hear someone like Paul Krugman or Hajun Chang or you know Noam Chomsky or Amy Goodman talking about something that I've said, I'm not just saying, look, I was right, look, I was right. For me, it's more about like, okay, 
I'm not crazy because, I, I, you know, the way I see the world, I like to think of it as basically the correct way of seeing the world. Now, I'm not saying I'm perfect, and if somebody that I trust says something different, then I have to sort of reevaluate where I'm coming from, and that's fine. That's an important thing for all humans to be able to do. However, uh, it's nice to occasionally get affirmation that, yes, what you think about a thing is generally true. So that's why I was happy to see this thing about Paul Krugman. Here's what he wrote. Uh, Robots mean that labor costs don't matter much, so you might as well locate in advanced countries with large markets and good infrastructure, which may soon not include us, but that's another issue, which we just talked about, Krugman. Uh, Hey, Paul Krugman, why don't you listen to the didactic syncast? Is there some sort of social issue that I don't understand? Uh, Come on, get down, do the bender. Uh, On the other hand, it's not good news for workers, he says. This is an old concern in economics. It's, quote, capital-biased technological change, which tends to shift the distribution of income away from workers to the owners of capital. Later in the piece, if this is the wave of the future, it makes nonsense of just about all the conventional wisdom on reducing inequality. Better education won't do much to reduce inequality if the big rewards simply go to those of the most assets. Creating an opportunity society, or whatever it is the likes of Paul Ryan, etc., are selling this week, won't do much if the most important asset you can have in life is, well, lots of assets inherited from your parents. So... I'm not, and again, look, as an educator, I would never try to claim that education is not important or that education can't be a way for people to, you know, ascend out of poverty and and create more uh, opportunity for themselves. However, I don't want to lie to my students. I'm not going to lie to them, and I don't want them to think that education is some silver bullet. Here we go again with the easy answers, magical doors. No. I tell my students every year, if, if, if somebody's trying to uh, give you easy answers or shortcuts, they're probably trying to tell you, sell you something and that thing's going to break or burst into flames quickly. The, the whole notion is that uh, education is the only pathway out. And it can be, but we don't want to oversell the value of education, especially if the economy is transforming itself into a service sector post-industrial reality where minimum wage is the standard. Because that's not a viable way to sustain a middle class. And let's not kid ourselves. It was a sustained middle class that caused the American economy to expand as well as it did over the middle of the 20th century. And we don't have a middle class. We don't have that expanding economy. It's a, it's a simple case of supply and demand. And where did the middle class come from? Well, it had a lot to do with government spending. I hate to tell you this. It's not so simple. That it's just government spending equals middle class. I know that. But... The, the, this, this prevailing free market fundamentalism that is going on in the U.S. right now absolutely ignores the fact that without, for instance, just to take two examples, without a massive government investment into an interstate highway system, there would have been no suburbs, and therefore there would have been no booming middle class. And a lot of it had to do with housing subsidies and the rest of it. Okay, so that's one thing. GI Bill is another. Uh, those are examples of government spending who created the middle class in the middle of the 20th century. And then the later part of the 20th century, without massive government investment into the internet, you have no tech boom in the 90s and the 2000s. So don't give me this hubbub about, oh, internet. I mean, Sarah Palin is the most flagrant example, but there's lots of others. Uh, government, I built that. Uh, uh, no, you didn't build it by yourself. You had a lot of help from the government, okay? Everybody does. And that's we need to acknowledge that that's what government can do well, is to stimulate the economy. And the stimulus worked, as I reported here not long ago. All right, finally in the economics file, we can't end without talking a little bit about high-frequency trading. I need a sound clip for that. Like, trading, I'm making it rain with my high-frequency trades. Or I guess it would be a robot saying that. I am making it rain, beetle boop, here's a club sandwich. 
Um, all right, microwave vies with fiber for HFT. In the world of, where is this from? I can't report on Computerworld.com. Everyone trusts Computer World. In the world of high-frequency trading, where being ahead of the competition by a few milliseconds can mean profits worth millions of dollars, finance firms are increasingly looking to decades-old microwave technologies for competitive edge. Oh, dude, if I put my stocks in the microwave, I can get an edge. Getting more money. Uh, uh, I'm making it microwave. Hot pocket. I'm going to heat it up to eat it up. Uh, drop it. Pocket like it's hot. Like Snoop Dogg. Like, uh, trade it like it's hot with your microwave oven. Uh, such firms are finding that wireless microwave technology, despite being in use for more than half a century, can deliver data a few milliseconds faster than fiber optic cable. Now, I've reported on this in the past, and satellite dishes are also going to work, and there's going to be sharks fighting it out with robots in the North Atlantic for some reason. I don't remember exactly where all that came from. But anyway, here's what it says. As a result, the once stagnant industry of microwave communications is finding itself in an arms race among vendors of new competitive offerings, said Mike Persico, CEO of financial exchange service provider Anova Technologies. That doesn't remind anybody else of Genova from Final Fantasy VII. Sephiroth! Uh, they buried the lead. Here we go. Rain can hamper performance with microwave technologies. So can low-lying clouds. Quote, interference can bring an entire network down, and you don't have that with fiber optic networks, Persico said. So we just got to find a way to get rid of that rain. I'll bet snow can do it too. There's snow all over Wisconsin. They're trying to keep me from making money. Damn you, Persico! Oh, man, I found a really interesting documentary. You should totally watch it. It's called The Inconvenient Truth Behind Waiting for Superman. If you don't know, Waiting for Superman was a documentary film that came out about two years ago, and it had all this stuff about how charter schools are the way of the future, and that's the way we innovate our way out of failing schools in poor areas, and there's examples of things like the Harlem Children's Zone and Michelle Ree in the Washington, D.C. area who closed a lot of schools, and that's how we're going to make education better is to close low-performing schools. And, of course, to figure out whether schools are performing well or not, you have to test them and test them some more and keep testing them. And merit pay is the way to go. And you pay your teachers really well and you demand 100 hours a week of work from them and you make the school year all year long and then you make the school day 10 hours and that's how you get kids out of poverty in, in poor areas through school. And never mind the fact that the robot's going to be doing all the work soon. It doesn't matter because kids will be educated. And don't get me wrong – Look, here's the thing. Educating poor kids, of course, I want to see that. And I went, as I said, I went to this thing recently in Madison about how we need to innovate our way out of poor performing schools in poor areas, especially schools that serve black kids. And the achievement gap between black and white is a disgrace. And we ought to do whatever we can to fix that. But I also get nervous when we give up democratic control of schools through charters and I don't know. It's a t it's a difficult thing. Anyway, this movie, uh, the documentary film, The Inconvenient Truth Behind Waiting for Superman, has a lot of really interesting perspectives. And they talk they talk to parents uh, 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 and students at schools that were closed in New York City, and the the whole question about how Harlem's Children's Zone operates and what charters do for and to the school district. And there's a lot of stuff to to look at. So definitely watch that piece. I'm gonna make that one of the top three. Uh, and I went looking because they talk about merit pay and they talk about class size and lots of other things. And, you know, the, the prevailing idea is that class size doesn't matter and that merit pay is going to make teachers work better. Well, there is a very interesting piece um, from USA Today uh, about this study that took place at Vanderbilt University uh, where they find that 
teacher bonuses don't raise student test scores. Uh, according to the USA Today in uh, 2010, they said offering middle school math teachers bonuses of up to $15,000 did not produce gains in student test scores. Vanderbilt University researcher, researchers reported Tuesday in what they said was the first scientifically rigorous test of merit pay. The results could amount to a cautionary flag about paying teachers for the performance of their students, a reform strategy the Obama administration and many states and local school districts have favored despite lukewarm support or outright opposition from teachers unions. The U.S. Department of Education has put a real, a great deal of effort into prodding school districts and states to try merit pay systems as part of its race to the top competition, although teachers unions have objected, blah, blah, blah. Now, I can't speak on behalf of teachers unions. I can't speak on behalf of all teachers everywhere. I can speak on behalf of me. And everybody who knows me knows that I am an awesome teacher. I am a fantastic teacher. I inspire kids in ways they've never been inspired before. I get, I had two notes from students right here because I know my credibility is in question. So I'm going to read these that students gave to me this year. They're, they gave me candy canes with these notes on them. That's, let me tell you something, kids. Never mind about buying your teacher's iPads. Not that I think any of them would be thinking about doing that, but this is the best gift any student ever gives me is little notes like this. It breaks, it makes me cry. I'm so, I'm so happy to have this stuff. So this one te- this student wrote, thank you for teaching everything you have. Merry Christmas. See you after break. Your room is so much fun. Another student wrote, uh, Mr. P, I really appreciate your enthusiasm for writing and learning. You make 7th Hour enjoyable. I really admire all of your activities with East Timor and other things. Thanks for making me a better and more analytical writer. So I just think that's awesome to get. So, so my point is that I'm a good teacher, a damn good teacher. And I don't want merit pay. The, the thinking is that, oh, good teachers want benefits for teaching well. But I don't want this. I don't want to be constantly judged based on whether my students are putting in the work or not. Because look, yes, these kids who gave me these kind notes, they're working hard and they're probably going to show, you know, value-added learning outcomes. But some students that I'm pushing and prodding are not really working very hard. And and the, that's not that's not going to reflect well on the the merits later on. The the merit pay, you know, I'm I'm going to it's going to look like I'm not teaching well. And, and it's just a bogus way to look at education because education is not a zero-sum game and education is not a banking model. The, 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 Paulo Freire talks about this banking model of education where the kid is a vessel to be filled up and that's not what education is about. Education is about questioning and it's about exploring and it's about kindling a fire and, and that's not something you can measure on a test, all right? Now, yeah, so whatever. Um, meanwhile, what about class size? Well, the Brookings Institution did a really good survey of the research that's been done about class size. And there's a lot to say about it. And again, it's not something that has a simple answer. So here's some excerpts from what the Brookings Institution said. The most influential and credible study of CSR, class size reduction, is the student-teacher achievement ratio, or STAR, study, which was conducted in Tennessee during the late 1980s. In this study, students and teachers were randomly assigned to small classes with an average of 15 students, or a regular class with an average of 22 students. Now, I would say 22 is not average. 25 is average. 28, when you get to high school, is fairly common. Anyway, this large reduction in class size, seven students or 32%, was found to increase student achievement by an amount equivalent to three additional months of schooling four years later. Later in the article, uh, because the pool of credible studies is small and the individual studies differ in the setting, methods, grades, and magnitude of class size variation that is studied, conclusions have to be tentative. But it appears that very large class size reductions on the order of magnitude of 7 to 10 fewer students per class can have significant long-term effects on student achievement and other meaningful outcomes. These effects seem to be largest when introduced in the earliest grades and for students from less advantaged family backgrounds. 
When school finances are limited, the cost-benefit test, any educational policy must pass, is not, does this policy have any positive effect, but rather, is this policy the most productive use of these educational dollars? Assuming even the largest class size effects, such as the star results, class size mandates must still be considered in the context of alternative uses of tax dollars for education. There is no research from the U.S. that directly compares CSR to specific alternative investments, but one careful analysis of several educational interventions found CSR to be the least cost effective of those studied. So, again, there's lots to be said about class sizes, but one question we ought to ask is why don't we have enough money for all of the useful education policies? Because Again, you know, look, I understand the need for most effective judgments on what mandates we're going to have and in terms of class sizes, what's the best way to go about, you know, raising educational outcomes. And if class size isn't the most cost effective, maybe we should use another one. But I would say if two of them would bring about even more benefits than just one, why can't we do two? Because the idea is always, oh, we got to do whatever we can for our children. That's why we got to find the best methods to go about blah, blah, blah. Well, if we got to do everything we can for our children, why can't we do all those things? It's 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 a uh, it's a it's a critical omission that goes on here. We're just talking about this in some of my classes. You leave out some part of it again, like the fracking thing. Like oh, these communities, you know, and the fracking thing is just like Nike going over to Indonesia and saying like we have to employ 13-year-old children to sew our shoes together because they don't have any other opportunities. Well, you're not some savior because you're going and presenting them an opportunity that happens to bring you lots and lots of profits. It's, I don't see an altruistic motive there. I'm sorry. And don't give me this stuff. You're providing something beneficial. Blah, blah, blah. You, you're, you're drinking their blood. Anyway. Um, oh, yeah, this is an interesting article. Uh, a Maryland school's chief uh, calls for a three-year moratorium on standardized testing. Montgomery County Superintendent... Hello, Superintendent Chalmers! Uh, Joshua Starr said Monday that the county, the country needs a three-year moratorium on standardized testing and needs to, quote, stop the insanity of evaluating teachers according to student test scores because it is based on, quote, bad science. He also said that the best education reform the country has had is actually health care reform. Later in the article, he said it is wrong to evaluate teachers based on the scores their students get on standardized tests because the method that is based on bad science. The method that it is based on is bad science. He noted that he had previously worked in the New York City Department of Education, the nation's largest school system, where there was director of, uh, where was director, what? Where he was director of school performance and accountability. It became clear, he said, that the formulas used to assess a teacher's value with the use of test scores had huge margins of error, as much as 55 points. While he said he assured that President Obama and Education Secretary Arne Duncan had the best of intentions, they are wrong to embrace this assessment method. In Montgomery County, standardized test scores have no percentage weight in teacher evaluations. And again, as I've always said about testing, testing can be a, a good way to figure out where students are and where you need to devote your attention in terms of helping them get better at what they're doing. That's fine. Nobody argues with that. The problem comes when you attach them to high stakes because the more you raise the stakes, the more unreliable the results are and the less useful things you can do with those results, period, end of discussion. And finally, I'm going to end on a sad note here because there was, there was a, a letter I, I shared with you recently from Diane Ravitch's website and it was all about what's going wrong in her school district. And unfortunately, it's not an isolated incident because we now have uh, a very interesting YouTube video from a Rhode Island teacher. And uh, I'm going to play you a little excerpt of it because it's kind of heartbreaking and you should hear it. Rather than creating lifelong learners, our new goal is to create good test takers. Rather than being the recipients of a rewarding and enjoyable educational experience, 
Our students are now relegated to experiencing a confining and demeaning education. Let's take a look at their typical day. Breakfast is no longer served in the cafeteria where children used to have time to talk and socialize. Now it is piled on a table in the classroom and consumed during the first moments of class, supposedly while they are working. Lunch isn't much better. By that time, the children are so starved for social contact and a chance to talk that the cafeteria quickly becomes unbearably loud for students and supervising faculty alike. The alternative, the dreaded silent lunch, is often the only answer. So now there's recess, which lasts all of 20 minutes when the weather permits. This should be time for all students to run around and work off their pent-up energy. But unfortunately, since recess is the only enjoyable part of the day for these students, teachers have been forced to use it as a bargaining chip in the classroom. Students either do their work, behave, and keep quiet during class time, or they lose recess. And more often than not, the kids who need the recess time the most lose it because of poor behavior in the classroom. So it's, again, this whole notion of, like, using education as a way to train kids and to get them ready to take tests and all that stuff, and it's all messed up, so... Ah! Finally, robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. The humans are dead. They look like they're dead. It had to be done. I'll just confirm that they're dead. So that we can have fun. Affirmative. I poked one. It was dead. Let's talk about something a little more positive. Killer robots! Um, there was a Business Week article that said what I said. Dude, again, this is, I should have put this next to the uh, Krugman piece. Hey, Paul Krugman, why didn't I put the thing from Business Week next to your piece? Is there some sort of organizational thing that I don't understand? I mean, Business Week is like some reliable news source. Anyway, uh, so the article in Business Week is, says, Robot workers, coexistence is possible. They're saying what I said. Can GDP continue to grow? Of course it can, says MIT economist Frank Levy. The question is, can everyone benefit? Extrapolate this further, and the role robots play in our economy and our lives begins to provoke fundamental questions about the nature of work. We have organized our economic system around the idea that income is derived from labor. But what happens when labor is not just transferred from one group of people to another, outsourcing, but to machines? History has never shown that life of idle hedonism brings out the best in human beings. We excel when we are creative and productive. To ensure that continues to be the case, we can't ignore or prevent the growth of automation, but we can bring our considerable talents to bear on determining what the future of work will look like. For the U.S., that will require innovation and entrepreneurship, but also policies that foster those things, such as an immigration policy that attracts and retains high-skilled newcomers who can help build job-creating industries and a corporate tax rate that encourages investment in domestic opportunities and not offshore tax haven chicanery. Critically, more of the wealth created by productivity gains needs to be channeled into a stronger system of education and training. Yeah, say it, business week. Um, Der Spiegel had a very interesting piece about drone operators. Uh, the article is titled, Pain Continues After the War for an American Drone Pilot. Uh, I'm going to read an extended excerpt because this is very interesting. So bear with me, people. 
people who fly the drones. Here we go. Uh, this guy named Bryant is the sort of focus of the, the, the article. Bryant remembers one incident very clearly when a Predator drone was circling in a figure-eight pattern in the sky above Afghanistan, more than 10,000 kilometers, 6,250 miles away. There was a flat-roofed house made of mud with a shed used to hold goats in the crosshairs, as Bryant recalls. When he received the order to fire, he pressed a button with his left hand and marked the roof with a laser. The pilot sitting next to him pressed the trigger on a joystick, causing the drone to launch a Hellfire missile. There were 16 seconds left until impact. These moments are like in slow motion, he says today. Images taken with an infrared camera attached to the drone appeared on his monitor, transmitted by satellite, with a 2-5 to five second time delay. With seven seconds left to go, there was no one to be seen on the ground. Bryant could still have diverted the missile at that point. Then it was down to three seconds. Bryant felt as if he had to count each individual pixel on the monitor. Suddenly a child walked around the corner, he says. Second zero was the moment in which Bryant's digital world collided with the real one in a village between Baglan and Mazar-e-Sharif. Bryant saw a flash on the screen, the explosion. Parts of the building collapsed. The child had disappeared. Bryant had a sick feeling in his stomach. Did we just kill a kid? he asked the man sitting next to him. Yeah, I guess that was a kid, the pilot replied. Was that a kid? they wrote into a chat window on the monitor. Then, someone they didn't know answered. Someone sitting in a military command center somewhere in the world who had observed their attack. No, the person wrote. That was a dog. Later in the article, Modern warfare is as invisible as a thought, deprived of its meaning by distance. Later in the article, one of the paradoxes of drones is that even as they increase the distance to the target, they also create proximity. War somehow becomes personal, says an interview subject named Tart. Later in the article, Bryant remembers the first time he fired a missile, killing two men instantly. As Bryant looked on, he could see a third man in mortal agony. The man's leg was missing, and he was holding his hands over the stump as his warm blood flowed onto the ground for two long minutes. He cried on his way home, says Bryant, and he called his mother. Later in the article, I got to know them. Until someone higher up in the chain of command gave me the order to shoot, he felt remorse because of the children whose fathers he was taking away. They were good daddies, he says. So, um, there's a notion that the drones are, are a way for us to divorce ourselves from the ugliness of war. It certainly makes it easier for the U.S. to go to war and to kill people overseas. But let's not forget that the people who are actually pulling the trigger, so to speak, are apparently being screwed up in the same way that frontline soldiers are with post-traumatic stress disorder. It's probably not a significant post-traumatic stress disorder. Maybe it is. I shouldn't speculate. Uh, but um, we can't pretend like it's not affecting people at all. Meanwhile, Richard P. sent me a thing about it's time to target Cerberus. Now, i got to tell you about Cerberus. Uh... <laughs> First of all, Mass Effect. Yeah, I know. But my favorite thing about Cerberus is that it's this private investment firm. And they, they're named after the three-headed dog that guards the gates of hell. Uh, in case you don't know about Cerberus. Uh, the company bought Chrysler a few years ago. And I remember hearing the news reports when it first happened. They were like, a private investment firm bought Chrysler today, a company called Cerberus. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, wait, what? What's it called? Cerberus? Is that really the name of a private investment firm? And it totally is. And and so, but after that report, I never heard the name of them ever again. But it was. That's the name of the company. From then on out, it was always so a private investment firm that owns Chrysler. Today said, blah, 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 blah. And there was no mention of their name. I wonder why they wouldn't want people to know that their name is Cerberus. What, uh, Bob, welcome back. Yeah, what, what should we call this company here? 
What do we do? Let's see. We eat people and we suck their blood out and we take the money and run. What can we call ourselves? How about Voldemort? No, nah, we can't call ourselves. That's trademarked. What's what's Greek? The Greeks had a lot of good stuff. We could take a name from them. How about Cerberus, that dog that eats people and sucks their blood? That's good. All right. We'll call ourselves that. Good call. Meeting adjourned. Anyway, this article from Richard P. says, uh, It's time to target Cerberus, the private equity firm that dominates the gun industry. Um, maybe this time really is different. The legislative wheels will begin to turn, producing simple and sensible progress on gun control. Uh, the, the conversions of Joe Scarborough and Senator Joe Manchin make me think this is finally a possibility. But if Congress doesn't act, here are two other ways to approach the issue. First, let's bring pressure to bear on the owners of the gun companies, Cerberus Capital in particular. Cerberus is a $20 billion private equity firm that has acquired several of the top gun manufacturers over the past years, bundling them together into one entity called the Freedom Group. The Freedom Group. The top gun manufacturers in the country are called the Freedom Group. Uh, and I'm proud to be an American. What would you do? Anyway, moving on. One final thing in the Killer Robots file. And then we're going to wrap this up. I'm already an hour and ten minutes in. Damn! I was supposed to be on break. I was supposed to be playing video games all day. What the hell? Ban helium balloons, academic warns. Dr. Peter Wolthers, a fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry and a University of Cambridge chemist, will use this year's Royal Institution Christmas Lectures to argue there will be, I should use a British accent, there will be serious problems in 30 to 50 years' time if the lighter-than-air gas continues to be wasted in party balloons. Let me tell you something, Wolthers, if that is your real name. That's not wasting it. That's using it for childlike whimsy in children. I would hope they'd have childlike whimsy. Wouldn't that be weird if a child had, like, adult-like whimsy or senior citizen whimsy? I'm excited for my birthday party. Why are you talking like that, Jimmy? You're six. I just want some cake. Fine, sit down before you fall down and pick up all these goddamn batons. Helium is a non-renewable gas that is used to cool magnets in MRI scanners in hospitals. It is also mixed with oxygen to make breathing easier for ill patients and can help save newborn babies' lives. And it makes awesome balloons. Hello? Why is that not as important as saving newborn babies? He party balloons are more important than saving newborn babies' lives. That's a moral judgment, and I'm making it, okay? I'm going out on a limb here. I know it may not be popular, but, you know, Martin Luther King said, what's popular is not always right, and what's right is not always popular. I'm going to stand up for what's right. Our freedom to have helium balloons. Why are you trying to restrict my freedom, Warthers? What a weird name, Worthers. What kind of name is that anyway? War I'm Peter Worthers. I know it's better than you. You just want your stupid balloons. Well, we're here in America. We don't go for that kind of thinking. We think children ought to have balloons. America! However, there is currently a global shortage of the gas which cannot be synthesized. The gas has to be extracted from beneath the Earth's crust, and 75% of the world's helium comes from the U.S. Oh, really? So this British doctor wants to tell us what to do with our helium, even though 75% of it comes from the United States. Well, Dr. Worthers, I'd say you don't get to say what happens to the helium, because we own it. It's American helium. So you can suck my balloons, Dr. Worthers. Uh -huh. Neil is 
like my hero now. This is the second week in a row he's offered me some awesome hip-hop music to use for the show. I've had this artist on hold for like a month ready to use him, but I keep getting stuff from Neil talking about you should use this track on the hip-hop segment. I'm like, hell yeah. So he sent me this thing from a guy named B. Dolan, who I had never heard of him, just like Scroobius Pip and Dan Lasack. But uh, I since bought Dan Lasack and Scroobius Pip's album, which is really good. You should check it out. Anyway, I said that last week. B. Dolan did this awesome version of the classic folk song, Which Side Are You On? And uh, yeah, it's awesome because it's all about homophobia. And he's a shirt on, says Free Cece, who refers to Cece Williams, who's a woman. I talked about her on the show one time. You could search the archives for information about that. Anyway, it's a really good track, and I'm going to play you a sample of it right now. Check it out. Who wrote the greatest lines of our generation But couldn't get from under their own small-minded hatred The same rappers say they troop in the front lines A casually use the word faggot as a punchline That's not a man, that's not a tough guy That is a sucker and a fraud to the culture Hip-hop is folk music grown from the struggle And half these fools could put the mic down and run as a Republican Fuck them, then they learn from their own wrong Homophobes don't go to my shows, we too strong And if you in the front row harassing girls during a song I'ma reach out and ask you exactly Which side are you on? Which side are you on? You ain't gotta like it Which side are you on? This is Which what we're faced with And this is the reality Which Now when we come to Washington In this campaign We're coming to get our check I'm on the side of poor people getting organized I'm on the side of choice where it isn't short supply I'm on the side of those the system doesn't authorize LGBT, we are on the side of pride Justice and equality Hell yeah, man, we need more hip-hop like that Oh, and they just showed a clip from Wisconsin What? Hell yeah, dude, that's that's what I'm talking about Thank you, Neil uh, yeah, so check that out, man. Clone of the week! Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting cause the engine is near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. Frederick Douglass. If you don't know Frederick Douglass, man, you don't know nothing about America. Uh, and it broke my heart to find out there was no Frederick Douglass in the most recent Lincoln movie. How are you going to have the most important movie about Lincoln in our generation and not have Frederick Douglass in that movie? If you don't have Frederick Douglass, you don't have Lincoln. Damn it, Hollywood? Burn, Hollywood, burn. Anyway, Frederick Douglass, uh, 1818 to 1895. He was an American social reformer, orator, writer, and statesman. At the age of 20, he escaped from slavery and dedicated his life to its abolition. Responding to the Dred Scott decision in 1857, he said, quote, Oh, hang on, back up. Dred Scott, uh, the Supreme Court said that he couldn't sue his former slave owners, and he said something like, um... The black man in America has no rights which the white man is bound by law to respect. So, this is what Frederick Douglass said. He said that we ought to see it as kind of a good thing, this Supreme Court decision, because, quote, this very attempt to blot out forever the hopes of an enslaved people may be one of the necessary links in the chain of events preparatory to the complete overthrow of the whole slave system, end quote. And I was looking that up because I was looking for quotes about hope because, you know, we're reading Inferno in, in the AP English class. And it starts with, you know, the sign above the gates to hell say, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. And uh, I wanted to find some quotes about hope because I don't believe that. I don't believe we should ever abandon hope. And I think that is what Satan wants us to do is to abandon our hope. And uh, I just think that's an interesting perspective that sometimes it's the fact that people are trying to deprive you of your hope that makes you realize, wait a minute, which side am I on? Oh, you see, you like the way I, I linked it back to the B. Dolan song? Which side are you on? All right. That's it, people. End of show.
Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, which is at fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other cool stuff. Shoutouts this week to Neil S. once again for this episode's hip-hop track and Richard P. and Jason Gullahar for being in touch and whoever it was that said they want to hear the East Timor show, I will do that before the next week is over. I promise. Damn it. Now I made a promise. Ah, I got to keep this promise, the East Timor thing. Um, also, special thanks to the Duchess because uh, she had to stay out of the office while I recorded this this week. So thank you, Duchess. Um, I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I'm a very busy man. You're going to have to deal with Listen, that. I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Yeah. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. ESP at FBESP.org. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Damn, 77 minutes. Ah, I thought it was going to be over quick. Once I start talking about nuclear fracking, I just can't stop.